Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force podcast. My name is Captain Richard Byrne, and I'd like to welcome you to our special podcast series In Conversation with the Irish Air Corps. This series was produced by the Defence Force Public Relations Branch and the Irish Air Corps Public Relations team. A special thanks to Corporal Michael Whelan, the curator of the Irish Air Corps Museum, and Noel Grothier for editing and producing the oral history recordings. One of the most obvious aspects of the Irish Air Corps is the aircraft that we see in our skies. And in today's episode, we're going to hear about the range of aircraft that have been used by the Irish Air Corps throughout the last hundred years. In 1922, the first aircraft that they were delivered, um, they were finished generally in the same colour schemes as the RAF. Uh, and that was because they came from uh, RAF stores and are from the salvage companies in England. But they still had their uh, RAF colour schemes. Uh, the only exception to that at that stage was the Martin side, Type A Mark II. It came in crate. Mm. It didn't fly across. It came in. A, came here in a crate. It was the first aircraft purchased, but it wasn't the first to arrive. No, the first to arrive was a, was an Avro five hundred four. Okay. Arrived in a crate in ship. From. But the first aircraft to land was a Bristol Fire. Is that right? Bristol Fire, yeah. As I went through the logbooks, um, I eventually came up to the period uh, just before the war where uh, attempts were being made to uh, strengthen the air. The air corps was very small. Um, there were only a small number of, of operational type aircraft uh, and uh, these included uh, cluster gladiators which were uh, twin, end, twin wing biplanes. There were biplanes single-engined, single-seat fighters. Um, they were, um, there were only four of them purchased and um, coupled with some other, the training aircraft, there was insufficient aircraft to even uh, make a, a complete um, general reconnaissance squadron. Uh, so attempts were made urgently to procure uh, aircraft. And um, when the Air Corps tried to get more uh, Gloucester Gladiators, the Air Ministry wouldn't release any more because they wanted them for their own defence purposes. Um, they also got four, at the time, um, Avro Ansons, which, which were the first uh, bombing aircraft acquired specifically by the Air Corps. And um, they were the first air, uh, first aircraft uh, with um, a retractable undercarriage uh, in use by the Air Corps and they were also the first twin-engined monoplane and um, the Air Corps then uh, tried to get another uh, uh, supply of Ansons and they subsequently got five from British uh, uh, from British sources, and they arrived in 1939. In, in March 1939, the government decided to purchase some amphibious aircraft, the Walrus, which could fly on water or land, and um, the crew was went over to collect 
three of these walruses in Eastleigh in uh, Southampton. And I remember the first solo trip I had in the walrus. I took off and I went, it was a beautiful day, and I went down across Southampton, down towards the Isle of Wight and up along the solo. And coming up in the opposite direction was the greatest sight I've ever seen in my life, the Queen Mary. In a beautiful day, steaming up Southampton water. And of course, I've always loved steamers and trips. used to make models. And in fact, I made a terrific one of her, of the Queen Mary. But I flew down along below the deck level and round her a couple of times, looking at this magnificent spectacle. And she really was out on her own. And I went home up to the east then and landed. And everything's all right. But a few days later, we had to come home. And we started off the three aircraft. Finborough Cohn was in the leading aircraft and he had a radio. Higgins and Quinlan, Mussey Quinlan were the other aircraft, and Andy Woods and I were on the left-hand aircraft. And we flew information out across the Bristol Channel and out towards Wales and across over St. David's, and we got the weather was getting worse by the minute. And we got lower and lower, and the sea was getting up under us higher and higher. We were down to a few hundred feet, and the weather was really appalling. And Andy and I had flown the Irish Sea a lot of times on our own. The others hadn't been. We'd been flying civilian airplanes and little airplanes to and fro across the island. We had a lot of experience. And Andy and I nodded together and said, to hell with this lot. And we just, we couldn't talk because we had no radio. But we wanted to get home. So we just turned out and we just ripped out of the formation and went back to Wales. We saw the naval place where the, the big Sunderlands were at Pembroke Dock. And we tried to make a pass and then we hit the water and bounced so hard we'd over the roof. And, and we decided, no, we better not do that. We'd never been taught to land on the water. We had no idea. So we thought that was unwise. So we went and landed in the field. And I got out and I went up the road. And in England, they're great. There were a lot of phone boxes, but one right there. And I got onto the exchange and said, can I speak to the RAF? He said, put me onto the RAF. He said, we're in a walrus. Is it you took our roof off a few minutes ago? I said, I think it probably was. They said, where are you? So I told them, right, we'll be up in a minute. So up they came in a car, and uh, one of the officers, they flew these huge Sunderland boats, you know. He said, right, I will, he spoke to Anne, he said, I will fly you into the base. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll win the car with your, with your driver and your other officers. So I won the car with them. And the RAF officer <laughs> took off with Andy, you see, and they flew in. And he thought he found a Sunderland, you see, and he went to put it in the and she did the loop, and she fell flop on her tummy in the water. It was a tremendous flop altogether, but he thought it was a big Sunderland, he found it wasn't just a uh, walrus. But anyway, we got in there, we had a mess and a drink, and we tried to put a call through. So we got on the phone, it took us five hours to get through. But we got through, and we told him the weather was so, so bad, we pulled out, and he was okay, we'd be home tomorrow. Now, the other two went on, and about a mile off Rossler, Higgins's engine failed, and he fell into the sea, and it was washed ashore, which was no help to the boat at all, you know, and the spoiled her clothes as well, but she was hauled home on the trailer a week later, which wasn't much the better for it for a very long time. Horn went ahead up the coast. The weather was so appalling, he wasn't able to get in over Dunleary, and landed in the harbour and anchored. See, he knew how to fly in the water. The rest of it didn't. So I did. I arrived home first the next day. But talk about the tortoise and the hare. We were the tortoises and we got home first. 
Oh yes, I flew the Les Amis a lot. I flew them a fair amount at night time, and they were beautiful airplanes to fly. Lovely, steady platform, you know, and as stable as anything in all kind of weather. We used to have to do a, a Met flight every day, which meant getting in and going up to uh, 15,000. You had a special civilian behind you, and he took measurements. And, and uh, sometimes that was a bit hair-raising. There was one storm I took off. That cloud was only about two or 300 feet, and it was just blistering with lightning. There was a beautiful sort of thunderstorm on. So it took off our riding into clouds. We beautiful on instruments, lovely. The steadiest airplane ever flew on instruments. And it just climbed up through, and that place was ablaze with blue, and you could see it nearly in the cockpit, like it's an almost fire, you know, all around. And she was humping a bit in the weather, but it was great. And right up, we came out up on top about 15, 16,000 into the sunshine. But it was solid the whole way up. And I said, I mean, how are we going to get down? Because the rain, he hadn't got the effort or anything like that on the ground to get us down. And I was a little bit worried about it. But I was flying around, and you won't believe this. Talk about seeing the Israelites and the other sea. But this happened as soon as I'm sitting here. I looked down, and there was a tube about 100 feet across. And it down at an angle of about 45 degrees. And there was the Bailey Lighthouse at the far end of it. They both had. Well, brother, did I go down that tube in the Lysander? Straight down, all the way down, and out came out over the middle of Dublin Bay. And that's gospel. As I said, God was my co-pilot all the way Something always was there to get you out of us. It was most extraordinary. I, I never happened. The, the only other thing that happened like that was the fog clearing. That I was able to do it mechanically, but this this big tube right down to that fierce and whole head was bathed in sunshine. Absolutely, this one went down that like a rocket out of the end and home. But she was a beautiful airplane to fly in there, so night time we used to come in without the floodlights, come in and onto the just little flares like they did in France. They've land in there, spies and things, you know. We took that night here too a bit, you know. And uh, remarkable airplane, lovely airplane. Okay, we got, went to, I, got, I got down to Gormus for an hour, for an hour eventually, and joined the, the, the fighter squad. And, uh, the fire squadron were, were they, they were equipped at that time with, with heli, uh, hurricanes and wild masters. The hurricanes, some of them were, were aircraft that had uh, crash landed in, in the country and they were built up and uh, serviceable by aircraft, air corps crews, and some were new. Well, I suppose they weren't new at the time, but they were bought anyway from uh, from the RAF, or from, not from the RAF, but how uh, sedating uh, it was. And they uh, we they were in in, in Rhinana. They were the hurricane was a lovely, it was a lovely aircraft to fly, very steady, and. Uh, and at a reasonable speed, and you could climb up to uh, 
around 20 to 25,000 feet and it, it wasn't suitable for, for operation from runways because concrete runways which we had in Rhinata because the tires quickly wore out and it was very hard to get replacement tires. So, you know, all our flying in the and the hurricane in Rhinata were is very restricted because of, of lack of spares for for the for the tires and the aircraft. But we got on all right. We did all right. There was an anthem there. We flew the anthem as well, and we flew the the wireless master. And uh, we used to come up to Gormstown to do air firing. While in Rhinana, we 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 do camera gun exercises. In other words, they had a camera gun uh, fitted to the heli to the uh, hurricanes. And uh, you did dry practices with the camera gun, and we—that's how we, we learned how to take aim and all that sort of thing by using the the, the the camera gun. We went to our first, my first uh, ground to air attack in Gaul. We the the the, the targets, the ground targets were. Uh, a 30 foot circle in the sand with uh, uh, a 5 foot sensor in it, 5 foot diameter sensor in it of the aiming mark. And I remember my first my first uh, practice on, on the target. I got the whole 160 rounds into the circle, into the 30 foot, into the target. And the CO of the airport at the time was, was uh, and uh, the captain was paid with a, well, good shoes to your honor, and that was the end of it. Our wings course was very interesting in that for most of the time we just had the one aircraft, the Miles Magister, and we were really fed up with flying it. We flew it in formation, we nearly committed Harry Kerry in the, in the thing. So it was a great relief in 1952, I think, January 52, when the Chipmunk came along, the replacement for the Old Miles Magister. We went solo on that. It was a more advanced aircraft, a marvellous aircraft, as I found out in latter years. The Spitfire then arrived, and of course, anybody who has flown the Spitfire, and we had heard so much about it that uh, we could not wait to get our hands on it. I don't think there is a better aircraft or a more enjoyable aircraft to fly. It really was marvellous. And I think I have about uh, 300 hours in it. And I loved every one of them. People still look back on those days as marvellous in the days of the Spitfire. My first visit out of Ireland was to collect the second six chipmunks. We flew to Harden, where we were weather-bound for a week and eventually set off for Baldana, still in bad weather. What was a little bit scaring for me is on the way into Valley from uh, Speak, I got an engine cut on uh, the way into land, and I've no doubt it was from being throttled back too much. The, the engine just dialed up, and I was fortunate to make the runway, but I do remember that there was a meteor coming up my tail, and the control tower 
shouting at me to get off the runway fast because he reckoned he hadn't sufficient fuel for a go-about. So I had to get out of the aircraft and push it onto the grass at the side of the runway, and your man got down. At that time, too, we had the old Martinet, another marvellous old aircraft. It was a target towing aircraft, a version of the Miles Master. And uh, for some reason or other, it, it fell to me to do a lot of the flying in the Martinet for target towing. And it was the most boring task, I remember. Uh, we did it for the air firing and as well, we did it for the artillery, the ACAC when they come up to do their annual ground-to-air practices. But it meant flying up and down about 500 yards off the beach in Gormiston at somewhere around 1,500 feet, towing about 3,000 foot of cable with a drogue after you. I do remember about the Martinet. In the latter years, no matter what they did, they couldn't stop eye leaks. And uh, I do remember that we used to have to open the cockpit and literally stand up and wipe the aisle off the windscreen to see where you were going. Yeah, I started flying the Provost in, uh, it would have been in August 1961. My first impression was getting into it. The height I had to lift my foot to step up on the wing, and there was a grab handle on the side to assist you getting up into the aircraft. The height I had to lift my leg, I remember that climbing up into it, and then you had a big articulated control column, a big stick, and this was something else. And the, the control surfaces were metal, and there was a different bang of the control surfaces, the size of the cockpit in comparison with the nice, cosy wall-to-wall cockpit that you had in the chipmunk where you looked over your left shoulder, you were looking down, and over your right shoulder, you were looking down. In the provost, it seemed to be such a big cockpit, and... Also, it had a different smell. Now, there's something that I would say maybe a lot of aviators notice. When you got into the chipmunk first, there was a peculiar smell. Now, what the smell was, a combination of grease and fumes and whatever, same thing in the Provost, it had a different smell. It also had a very gentle type of movement over the ground in comparison with the chipmunk from which I had come, which was small on a grass airfield, which was... A rather robust taxi ride. The Provost appeared to have a nice, gentle, heavy, it was, of course, a heavier aircraft, and it had a better, a more cushioned ride. And, of course, we were in on a concrete airfield. But it was a big machine in comparison to the Chipmunk. Very powerful, very strong machine. In the aerobatics, you could pull quite a lot of G but it stalled very suddenly. You had to know the limits, but it was one where you could use your two hands pulling a loop. And generally, you could use your two hands um, because it had a constant speed propeller, which we weren't used to in the, in the um, coming from the chipmunk. But you used your two hands doing uh, aerobatics. It was a, quite a new sensation. After about a year or maybe less, I moved into the hangar proper, uh, where the aircraft were generally overhauled and, and uh, inspections took place of Chipmunk, Provost, and DH Vampire aircraft. Now, I tended to gravitate towards the Vampire as I had a particular interest in the, in the jet engine. This was in 1958-59. The Vampires had arrived in Baldonnel in 1956, 
In August 1956, before I joined the Air Corps, I happened to attend the unveiling of a monument in Wexford Harbour to Admiral, Admiral John Barry, the founder of the United States, States Navy. It was a Sunday afternoon, I remember, maybe late afternoon, and it was quite overcast. It was August, rain, drizzly, overcast day. When all of a sudden we heard this tremendous noise. None of us had ever heard anything like it before. It hadn't been heard in Ireland before. When out of the clouds, the low clouds, came two jet aircraft in, in formation. Happened to be two, two vampires. They had only arrived in, in, uh, in, in, in Ireland a couple of weeks previously. The two aircraft did a, a fly past, very noisy, impressed everybody, and then disappeared again. So I was obviously intrigued and, and impressed with, with, the, with the fly past of the two jets. This is August. In October, I actually joined the Air Corps. And obviously, very, very interested in getting close to the vampires. And finally, when I had come up camp, I had the opportunity to work on them in, 19, in 1958, two, two, two years later. It certainly sparked my interest in the Air Corps, the sight of the two aircraft. November the 23rd, we set flying on the return journey to Baldona with the first two helicopters, 95, 195 and 196. I remember well, 7 o'clock in the morning in November, in my short sleeves in Marseille, checking out the helicopters. And... Uh, setting off for Paris. We refueled in Lyon, no problem there, but after leaving Lyon and heading north, the weather started to deteriorate, and the chief pilot who was coming to Baldonnel with us was navigating, I was flying, and uh, having had 3,000 hours experience in bad weather around Ireland, I wasn't trusting anybody, and I had my own map, and I found that looking at the map, we were way off course. And eventually I did say it to Boulay and we discovered we were 25 miles off course. Eventually got back in course and uh, arrived in Isle Molino in darkness. Temperature I think of minus two having left Marseille in a temperature I think of about 18. And uh, set off the following morning for the 2K where we refueled. On from that to Gatwick another refueling, on to Cardiff for the final refueling. We had arranged that we possibly might need fuel on the trip between Cardiff and Baldonnell, somewhere south of Wicklow. But the chief pilot urged that we didn't. And I know coming up to Greystones, the red light, fuel warning light, came on and uh, he assured me that we had another 20 minutes. So... We arrived in Baldonnell again in darkness, naturally, to a great welcome. It was the first time that helicopters with an Irish marking had arrived in the country. Doves were an interesting aeroplane. One of the one item early on in my career, which I remember, was we took off on the Dove from Mickey on and one of my early uh, flights selected the gear up but ended up with one red light so fly around and 
need to get it checked out. So the word went out, asked the tower to get to ring the hangar to get a couple of lads come out onto the ramp to have a look, see if they can. We'll fly by. They can have a look and see what state or where the wheel is, mm. whether it's up, down, or whatever. So it's grand. Then we got a call say, "Yeah, they're they're out on the ramp now." So we came in from the west along the ramp, and I'd say the the ramp was full. Everybody out to watch it to see it. What had actually happened was for whatever reason, maybe because the aircraft wasn't exactly level, the door had closed before the wheel came up, so the wheel was trapped outside the door, is what had actually happened. But my abiding memory is there was four or five hundred people, man, that was probably a bit too much, there was two hundred people lining along the ramp from hangar number four to hangar number one, all standing around, <laughs> rubbing the hands, watching the aircraft coming in. And... <laughs> The only person I saw as I went by was the chaplain. Oh. <laughs> All right, very honest. <laughs> anyway, they decided, they decided they saw that the door was actually trapped, so we selected gear down again, and everything worked, and we came straight around and landed, and there was no issue. Everything was grand. But indicative of two things, the, the way things used to happen, the way word can spread so quickly, even in places without the phone systems that we had then, yeah. <laughs> or we have now. Um, and remembering that while I saw that the chaplain was the only one who, to my thing, as we flew by at a hundred odd knots, yeah. that I could see, but you weren't allowed to fly unless the chaplain and the doctor were on base, or else flying stopped. As a young officer, I recall at one stage, a uh, major row here over the fact that FTS went night flying and they hadn't advised the chaplain and he wasn't on station. What was Gormanston like? Yeah, it was It was old. Like, you felt you were back in the Second World War with it, really, in the emergency, because everything was wooden huts. There, there was The officer's mess had a concrete part to it, but the bar was still a, a wooden hut tagged onto the back of the concrete yeah, yeah. hut. Uh, which was the mess secretary's office and the bar store and there was a beer garden which got great sunshine we had so much fun there and but it was old um the squadron hut was down on the flight line the hangar was quite new and um, uh, accordion doors that 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 easily opened and closed they were quite advanced a good roof they didn't it didn't seem to leak and we had more than enough space there was a three bay hangar so that the, the south bay was for operational aircraft and first line maintenance I think the second bay was used for 200 hour checks and stuff, or for 50 hours minor re rectification. And then the North Bay, which is the bay nearest to the camp, was where Flight Sergeant Herty and PD, Flight Sergeant Herty and Noel Coates did deep maintenance. They'd bring aircraft in there for 200 hour inspections with the crew. And that was the, that was kind of sick bay for Cessnas. Yeah. Now, if there's anything needed to be done, we'd fly them down to, down to Baldonnell. If there was sheet metal work that was extensive or an engine change or, or an engine problem or anything like this, they, they, we'd fly the machines down if they could fly safely. We knew the days, the days patrolling, the weeks patrolling was up. Uh, Flight Sergeant Jim Smith ran the operations in the squadron on, on, on rails. Uh, Colonel General Curley, sorry not General Curley, but Commandant Curley, Pat Curley, uh, just really gave leadership to the, to the, the, the young aviators and kept us 
he knew what he was dealing with that we were <laughs> full of testosterone and wanted to do stuff with his airplanes that we weren't meant to do um, but we, we were very busy doing um, explosives escorts at the time around the border and searching for Robert Nyrak the British yeah. Army spy who was shot by the IRA and remember doing trips like that and then we also commissioned the drogue towing equipment that year it was the first time these targets were put on the Cessnas um, and we all took turns to get checked out and to, to tow it for the gunners and for the 40 mils for the Bofors what was that like was it worrying terrifying yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was when I uh, when I, I sat down I did a liaison officer one day down at the firing point and I kind of saw a few strange things going on I wondered maybe it's better to be on the ground behind the guns than yeah, be yeah. in the air in front of them uh, but they <laughs> but they they blasted away um, what else did we do Ooh, par- parachuting I, I actually didn't do any I don't think we did any parachuting while I was there um, uh, we had rockets on the aircraft we had them armed at one stage but then there was um, there was a, a double feed mortar explosion in the Glen of Amal and they banned general staff banned all live firing until they found out what was going on whether it was a problem with the ammunition or what okay. happened so um, I actually never got to fire the rockets out of the Cessna so I was really looking forward to it because yeah. we got the sights on the aircraft and we were doing um, practice runs there's a, a direction finder in, on the airfield in Gormiston shaped like a little mushroom painted red and white and we were using that as a target uh, to, to practice dive attacks on uh, and then we got, got onto the ground one afternoon and we were told you know you're not, you're not flying anymore you're not firing but I spent a lot of time also in Dublin well not in Dublin Shannon and Cork doing radar approaches because they had talk down radars precision approaches like we had here until we got the ILS in and to get your keep your rating, you had to talk down so many aircraft per month. Right. And Cork was kind of quiet. And a lot of the big stuff going into Shannon used the instrument landing system. They just landed using their own pilot interpreted aid. So to keep the radar rating going for emergencies, which right. would be when they'd be used, um, they needed aircraft to do approaches. And one or two line traffic a day didn't really oh. keep the numbers up. So we'd go down. I went down to Cork one day with Ray Conway. And we we arrived down, and we said, "Well, we're here for the for the PAR approaches." So we flew all morning, um, on the tank of fuel. So we did about two hours of them. It was an hour down to, from Gormiston, and about two hours, and we landed just on minimums and refueled. Went up, went up to the tower to see what they wanted us to do in the afternoon. And we'd been flying all day, and we kind of said it was, it was kind of quiet. And the lad said, "Well, no, we haven't. Look at the movement board." We looked over at the movement boards, and there was, there was fifteen aircraft had moved, and we. We said we didn't hear anything coming through the frequencies, and we went over and had a look at it. Yeah. And it was Air Corps Cessna, Air Corps Cessna, Air Corps Cessna, Air Corps Cessna. So we, we'd given Cork Airport 15 movements in, in one morning, and then we refueled and we did another 15 in the afternoon, and then dodged off home. And I did the same in Shannon yeah. as, as well, and that was all to keep civil ATC going. Life in ATC was pretty good. Uh, the Air Corps was evolving and changing, uh, getting new aircraft and uh, life was becoming much busier than it was when we went there initially um, you know because the Marquettes arrived in 77 or something like that the Fugus had arrived a year before uh, they were buying King Airs for maritime patrolling uh, buying the HS125 jet uh, and uh, there was eight Alouettes going uh, Cessnas were based in Gormiston so it was a busy place then and uh, the airfield itself was being developed. There was new runway lighting going in. Uh, the, they bought a VOR DME, which was installed in 1980. Uh, the tower was renovated. Uh, 
So all that was going on. Sounds like a bit of an investment as well. Don't yeah, there was a lot of investment. Well, they had to, to upgrade the airfield to, so they could do night ops for uh, the government jet service and all okay. like that, you know, the mat service. And uh, so, yeah, it became a busier place. And did this come in the back of the troubles with the Borough campaign in the late 60s and all that? One? Uh, well, I don't know to what extent. The, 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 uh, the, the, the big factor with regards to King Airs and the 125 was our joining the EU, or the EEC as it was then, uh, because they had commitments to patrol their maritime areas. So they got money from the EU to buy aircraft. And they had to buy a jet to fly ministers around to, all yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, the Marchettis were replacing chipmunks and provost aircraft, so yeah, they yeah, were they yeah. were they were clapped out. They had to be replaced yeah. at that stage. The Fugus replaced the uh, vampires, so none of them really were anything to do with the troubles. The aircraft that arrived that was to do with the troubles really were, were the Cessnas, which came in seventy two. And they were used uh, for recce and for cash escorts, yeah. prisoner escorts, uh, border patrols, all that. And that was the workhorse of that. And they were based in Gormiston and they operated down there in their own little world. That's And the helicopters obviously were very involved in border ops. Like there was a border, there was a helicopter deployed to Finner at that stage. There was a helicopter deployed to Monaghan. I wouldn't be able to give you exact dates. But uh, so... There was that commitment there all the time. We had eight Alouettes here at the time, so there was three Alouettes committed weekly, one to SAR, one to the, two to the border, uh, and all like that, you know? So there was a heavy demand for helicopters. In, in 1981, between March and July, I was sent to the RAF to do an instructor's course on gazelles. Where uh, was that? In? That was in RAF Shawbury in Shropshire. They had 23 gazelles in the squadron. I was in heaven. <laughs> you know, so that was your first introduction to gazelles? No, I, I, I delivered 237. Okay. I'd, I'd gone to... I, I'm still in heli squadron. I'd been sent on an instructor's course in 1980. And as I was getting towards Christmas, I discovered I was on, um, I was on a ticket to, Par to Marseille with Ken Byrne and Hugh O'Donnell to do the first gazelle course, ground school. And then Ken and myself were going to deliver it after Christmas okay. to Baldonnell. So the three of us did the ground school, um, came back for Christmas, flew back out to Marseille, um, and and then Flight Sergeant Byrne, or I think it might have been Sergeant Byrne at the time, was the crew the crew leader on the Gazelle. Uh, the three of us flew it up through the centre of France, up to up to Lyon, over to Auxerre, Auxerre to Paris, Paris Le Touquet, Le Touquet, Cardiff, Cardiff casement. Okay. And we picked up a King Air escort uh, over the middle of the Irish Sea to get us just to follow us across the ocean. So was that a couple of days flying? Two days. Yeah, it was two days. We we were lucky. It was only yeah. two days. It could have been a week. Yeah. Uh, th those flights have been up to a week long, yeah. in the, especially in wintertime. But the first thing was the gazelle went like the clappers. Mm. It wasn't doing 95 knots. It was doing 145. And it doesn't sound like much, but it makes a difference. Yeah. So you, you can easily get to Paris on the first day. And then up early in the morning, off to the 2K, tank of fuel and then depending on the headwinds you can go either go to Southampton which is halfway down track or if the winds are lighting you can get all the way to Cardiff okay. with reserves and then refuel and phone home find out just let them know when you're going to be over the ocean and the King Air will come down and meet you it'll be talking to you on the radio mm. but uh, they'll come down and meet you and bring you home so we delivered it on the 29th of December 79 oh the Alouette then yeah that's probably like I've, I like the, I love the 139 that I'm flying now, but my wife used to, 
sort of slag me that we were going to name our first child Alouette. Uh, I talk about it so much. It was yeah. the Alouette is, I'd say, my favourite aircraft that I've flown out of anything. Give my right arm to fly that Alouette out in the hangar again now. I just loved that aircraft. It was, um, and I think Alouette, Alouette pilots generally around the world all have very fond, high regard for Alouettes and you know very fond memories of of flying them for every for anyone that's. Um, for anyone that's that's uh, that's moved on from them or that they retired their Alouette fleet and that sort of thing. But yeah, I did um, six years in Alouettes, six or seven years. I built up a lot of flying time during that time and the Alouette is all, you know, it's all levers and pulleys. Mm. Um, all moving parts. There was no moving map. There was no, we had a very, very, very basic GPS on the yeah. top that was literally gave you a sort of a little heading line, but there was that was very basic um, a lot of the time didn't work so you were literally just your 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 map everybody had a very worn map um, and your and the engine itself and that was, that was it you were hands on very much a hands on helicopter and you began to know it literally like the back of your hand yeah. um, like I could probably still fly that thing with my eyes closed it was just you, you were not much in tune with it whereas the 139 now it's a, it's a brilliant helicopter to fly as well, and it's great fun and everything. But it's that's all computer. You, it's flown through computers. Mm-hmm. You tell it the computer what you want to do, and the computer controls the helicopter. And it's got every you know bit of gizmo going under its own. Yeah. It's moving maps and it's full flight management systems and GPS and electronic ground proximity warning systems and radar and everything. So yeah. the Alouette was really were. It was real sort of a. You know, it was, it was basic, but it was a great helicopter. So the role of the 139, just for an example, that's got a more multi-role. 139. We can walk in a lot more with the army now, and there's weapons on it. You can, the GPMG, you can fire from, you can fit that into it. You can do troop carrying, you can do insertion, you can do, the, we carry the Rangers on secret missions, and they have the abseil in there with them. It can do air ambulance. It can do VIP. It can. It's multi-role. It yeah. can do everything, and that's what it was bought for. Yeah. It was bought with that purpose. Some of the 139s you see out there are much nicer interiors than we have, and all that. But you can't convert them as quick as you convert ours. Ours can be turned around in half an hour into any role we want. Well, I, I suppose you know I've flown a, a lot of aircraft, so from the least powerful being the Cessna, yeah. where it's predominantly around Ireland, to the G4, where I've been down into the heart of Africa and across the Atlantic. The Gulfstream 4 was the, the government jet at the time, um, and I did a number of trips down to Africa, down to the Middle East, um, the Lebanon, places like that. Uh, one that sticks out was a trip to uh, Uganda and Ethiopia with Minister of Foreign Affairs, and that was, it was a trade mission. Uh, we we had a number of places to visit. Yeah. We're supporting Irish industry and Irish aid effectively in those yeah. countries. Um, but you depart Ireland. Uh, this was a, a July flight. I remember it sticks out, and it's everywhere is green. You pop yeah. out over the Irish Sea, then you're you're down across the UK where it's it's equally green, but it's more built up. And yeah. then you get down into Europe, and before you know it, you're you're over the Med, and then you're crossing into Africa. And I mean, I just got up from my my bed in, in the officer's mess or in Nace wherever I was living at the time that morning and here I am overhead the Sahara Desert and you know you're talking to different people all the way down from you know your Irish controllers your English your French down into your Italians and then you hit North Africa and there's all the different accents 
and suddenly you land in a, in a different world and the door opens and this 40 degree oppressive heat <laughs> hits you and everywhere is it's just so different yeah um but that was hugely exciting at the time as well you know i was one of uh maybe three co-pilots on that aircraft at okay. any one time and missions would come in and some would go ahead some would be cancelled and you'd spend a lot of time planning them but i used to get excited about the the longer trips and these trips going to destinations that people don't go to yeah, on their right. holidays and that that feeling of excitement of well, what's this going to be like and and i'm going to experience some great things here and you literally you arrive up at the aircraft that morning you do your bit of planning you get on board and like there were days going off in that aircraft where i thought is this real life like is this is this actually happening i'm going to fly to effectively a different world and land there and stay there for a day or two and get up the next morning and go to somewhere else um, and it was just it was a very privileged feeling yeah. i have to say i was lucky enough to fly three aircraft in in the mat uh, area so I, I shortly after commissioning i flew the beechcraft king air right up until the end of 2003 when we purchased the learjet and i was one of the first uh, there was three crews on that initially so i did the first initial course for that aircraft and was on that for about two and a half years um that was very exciting it was a, a short range jet you could go about four hours so anywhere in europe a few trips down to north africa I suppose back, uh, so a number of years later, I was on the G4 and I did a, a Gulfstream course just after getting back from overseas in Chad. Um, and I spent about four years on that aircraft with a gap of two years in the middle. That was excellent. I mean, I, I was checking my logbook yesterday. I did, I think I did nine transatlantic hops. And then uh, I spent uh, time in number four support wing, um, basically working on Marchetti's and... Uh, then um, it was mainly Marchetti's or Cessna's or anything that came into engineering at that stage but uh, Marchetti's were going to be phased out so the big plan was uh, Pilatus aircraft was the new aircraft that was coming on so we were gearing up towards that and I was offered um, training on the Pilatus aircraft where we'd have to go to Switzerland so I I think it was around March 2004, a group of us went to uh, Switzerland where we were given uh, three weeks instruction on the Pilatus aircraft. In around, if I remember, around March, April, uh, one of the aircraft was sent over and they also sent over a rep, a field service engineer to help out. So it was a, it was a big, big change because for years and years we had the, the piston engine uh, Marchetti's and of that time they were a great aircraft but this was now 2004 and now we were introduced to a, a turboprop ejection seats was the big big thing on this um, aircraft and we hadn't had ejection seats since uh, 70s. since the 70s since the vampires so this this was a big big uh, a big big thing so we found ourselves in this uh, um, pandemic <laughs> Uh, we engaged um, in a program to replace our Cessna fleet five years ago. Uh, a contract was signed uh, a couple of years ago with Pilatus to supply three PC-12 aircraft. Um, and they are they were due earlier on this year, to Juno and uh, Q3 to 4 of this year. I was looking at a, a limited, I suppose, ability to respond to any tasks. Um, so uh, through discussions with the Department of Defence, the decision was taken to purchase uh 
an extra PC12 that Pilatus had available um, and uh, that was delivered in a, a couple of weeks. Um, we had done all the heavy work in terms of preparing ourselves for our own three aircrafts so this was an easy fit into that um, and with, within two weeks of that aircraft being delivered um, we were able to declare it operational uh, after done initial pilot training um, to provide logistics support not only for the Defence Force but for the state if required. Um, so where that then began to uh, become apparent was in uh, the repatriations from the Defence Force personnel overseas who were either sick um, or who were couldn't get commercial flights home. Um, so as an example we had a, a contingent in CAFER uh, which is in um, uh, Kosovo. Kosovo sorry, and there was no way that they come out so we utilised our CAS aircraft to replace to bring out the, the, the personnel going out and to bring the returning personnel home who then went into self-isolation for a couple of weeks. And because we were using the CAS aircraft, we could um, bring their, all their kit out and gear out as well. Um, we then got into the realm of, uh, because the testing was ramping up, um, that there was insufficient capacity on island to uh, analyse the tests. So a contract was signed with a lab in Germany. Um, and um, that was being done commercially, but the commercial uh, option didn't work on weekends. Um, so we were asked, uh, tasked as opposed to being asked, could we, uh, with, with supplying air transport. So we utilised the PC-12 for that uh, and the CASA aircraft also. For more information on the Irish Air Corps, check out our social media channels and our website, military.ie. The Irish Defence Force podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.